Welcome to the Pure Flix Podcast, a show brought to you by PureFlix.com. PureFlix.com, the faith, family, and fun video streaming service. Get ready for uplifting news, scripture, movie reviews, and interviews with some of your favorite actors, authors, and pastors. Let's get started. Hey, what's going on? It's Billy Hollowell, and welcome to the Pure Flix podcast. This is our weekly show where we dive into entertainment and faith and so much more. And today we're going to start the show, dive right in with a conversation with Sean Carney of 40 Days for Life. Now, Sean founded 40 Days for Life. This is a pro-life organization that holds peaceful prayer vigils outside of abortion clinics across the country and across the world. And Sean is also the guy who in real life helped Abby Johnson. And if you don't know Abby, she's the centerpiece of the film Unplanned. The movie's about her real-life story of leaving behind her work at Planned Parenthood and moving into the pro-life movement. Sean's the guy that helped her do that. He used to pray for her. He knew her when she was working at the clinic still, and she came to him for help when it was time to leave and move forward with her life into the pro-life world. So let's welcome Sean to the show right now. Hey, Sean, how's it going today? Pretty good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Can you just take me through a little bit about what it is you do at 40 Days for Life? Yeah, 40 Days for Life is very simple because it's based locally. You know, we, we're in 816 cities and we hold 40-day-long, uh, peaceful, law-abiding vigils outside of abortion facilities. So we did the first campaign in College Station, Texas, launched it nationally having no idea where it would go in the fall of 2007 and it just took off and so over the last 12 years we hold two campaigns a year internationally coordinated one's in the fall one's in the spring during the season of lent and we pray we fast and we show up at these abortion facilities and peacefully pray and offer alternatives and so we've now had campaigns in 816 cities in 54 different countries, 56 different countries around the world. So it's just been awesome. This fall we'll, we'll have you know at least 350 to 400 cities participate wow. uh, who sign up this summer. So you know we, we have large campaigns, we have a huge presence, and like you said, it's to focus on the hearts and minds. Uh, you know we've helped 190 abortion facility workers have a change of heart leave their jobs. We've, we've know of 16,000 babies that are alive today wow. that we can confirm. And, and we just crossed a milestone this spring. We saw the 100th abortion facility, uh, close their doors and wow. where 40 days for life has taken place. So it's very impactful and it's, you know, it's a joy to be a part of it, but it focuses on the, the real issue, which is, We've created this scenario where a woman is paying a physician to end the life of her child. It's the most unnatural act in the history of the world. And so, you know, it, it's very dire. Women don't grow up wanting abortions. They feel they have no other choice. So we really work on that and go, go to the front lines. Now, you, you said 16,000. What is it like to know that your work and your organization and everything you've done has had 
that kind of impact where there are 16,000 human beings that have been able to come into the world because you guys have been willing to go and pray and be present? Well, it's a it's a it's motivating to make it better and to keep going, but it's a testament to we just passed one million volunteers. It was some cool milestones this year so far. And you know, one million volunteers have decided to put in their schedule to go out for an hour, a week, an hour a day, an hour a month, whatever it is during a 40 days for life campaign and peacefully pray and trust that because discouragement is is the biggest you know, threat to any pro-life work, I believe, but, or anything else you're trying to do, any kind of movement you're part of, but we're outside, you know, we're in the sleet, we're in the snow, we're in the heat. And I think it's so motivating for me to see the trials, the tribulations that so many have overcome to dedicate their most valuable thing these days, which is time and go out there and peacefully stand and witness to uh, people who don't want them there, some of them in, inside the abortion industry, but also strangers. You don't know who you'll meet. And when those strangers end up choosing life for their baby, it's beautiful. And and we get to know many of these women, and some of them have led campaigns and gone out and joined the vigil after choosing life. See, that was going to be the next question I had for you, this, this 16,000 number. I mean, do you get a chance to hear the stories of people after? Because that's the big critique. Well, you know, you pro-lifers, you convince people to have the baby, and then they don't have any help after. They don't, you know, they're, they're destitute after. But, but you're telling me there are actually some people who come out and then support your, your mission. So I'd love to know more about that. But also, you know, do you get a chance to track some of these stories? Absolutely. And, and when people subscribe, it's a free uh, magazine, Day 41 magazine, our quarterly pro-life magazine. You can get it on our website. We highlight some of these stories. I know recently I met uh, uh, an incoming high school freshman who was saved the early, the first 40 Days for Life campaign that we ever did. Met him 16 years later. Oh, wow. So, you know, there's nothing like that. And I, it's such an elementary argument. Um, it's kind of third grade to say, well, obviously, if you are against abortion, uh, you have no love for any other human ever. And, you know, this is your thing and you 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 exclude all of these other things, helping the poor, helping care for the baby, helping the women afterwards. And of course, the opposite is true when you're in this work. These are the people that are providing free medical care, uh, free uh the opportunity to see a doctor get a baby uh, who was had severe disabilities and the mom we were able to put her in touch with a uh, prenatal uh, disability physician in Los Angeles and she ended up choosing life and I've met them we know them to this day and they go out and pray and she went in to have a late-term abortion in California and so you know I think all of our leaders being equipped to have the local medical, references, the local physicians willing to help, local adoption agencies. It is completely the opposite of the stereotype. We are there before, during, and after the abortion. And Planned Parenthood's not. There is no follow-up appointment after an abortion. Your your child has become a statistic, and, and you've used your right. And so congratulations and, and have a nice life. And yet we're always there for the women and the women that have abortions. We're there for them and who don't choose life at the last moment. So 
it's it's a wonderful joy to see. And we we've had some of our local leaders are the godparents of the baby. Uh, one lady was in the delivery room with the, oh, wow. the woman who chose. Yeah. So there's a real so, relationship that develops between many of the people who are with you on the front lines and and these women. Absolutely, absolutely, and that's how we get to know. And as you know, the workers as well. You know, the workers who we've helped leave are are, are friends with with either our local leaders or, or myself and the national team. And it, it's beautiful to see because often it's the first time they've really ever felt love. That, wow, for the workers, you're not really judging me. And for those who choose life, you know, you said that you were going to be here for me. And, and when I came back out and decided not to have the abortion, you really meant it. And, and so a relationship can't help but bud from, from that. Yeah, no, and that's incredible. Let, let's talk about one of those relationships that has become very uh, well-known and famous, a relationship that you, um, that you forged with Abby Johnson. And we saw this relationship play out in the movie Unplanned. And so, well, first, before we even get into that, what is it like to watch yourself be portrayed by somebody else on screen? <laughs> it's weird. <laughs> and it's never not been weird since I first saw it. I saw the movie Thanksgiving of 2018. It came out March 29th of 2019. So uh, it is. It's weird. Of course, it's such an honor to be part of it and 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 be depicted in a movie that was uh, something I, I never would have imagined would happen. And so when they Chuck and Carrie first called me and they said, we bought the rights to Abby Johnson's book, Unplanned, and we're going to portray you and your wife. We need to come to Texas and interview you, I just sort of sat there and said, who is this? You know, <laughs> Wait, like what is happening? High school buddy. Yeah. Yeah. Some prank. <laughs> so it was, they made a great movie. Uh, it is strange seeing yourself on the screen, but what was great and, and to the credit of Chuck and Carrie is they made an accurate movie. The movie's accurate. And so it doesn't have things in there that, you know, I'll be answering in, in 30 years saying, well, they said that and that wasn't true. It was, it was very well done. Uh, my wife and I both knew Abby when she volunteered for Planned Parenthood, and then Abby and I became directors of opposing organizations at the same time, and that's where 40 Days for Life first began, was outside her facility, and we treated her like a human being, and she responded. Mary Lisa, my wife, used to walk her to her car after she would volunteer or after work. And that was, you know, very, very fruitful. And at the time, you don't know if it's going to be. But so you would describe there, the relationship as friendly. Yeah, I would I would describe Abby when she worked at Planned Parenthood as different. I think that what is difficult at an abortion facility is you usually have and her boss is like this in the movie and was definitely like this in real life. They were generous to her character in the movie. Hard to believe. But they don't give you the time of the day. They park their car. They go in. They run an abortion facility. They get in their car and they leave. And they, they don't you don't even exist. They don't even look at you. You're a religious nut. And Abby was in the camp, which a lot of the workers that leave are, in that she had to justify her job. And so it was always she she just lived in a world of rationalization, which many of the former workers will say, I can relate to that. That's that's what I did. You know, she was I go to church too, kind of stuff. I'm a good person. <laughs> we're here for women, you know. And she doesn't need to talk to us. Uh Planned Parenthood, if I were them, I would train them to avoid us and avoid Which any Which I'm sure they do. I'm sure she just wasn't <laughs> uh, she wasn't following orders and that ended up backfiring, but 
Uh, we had many conversations through the fence, all the conversations and the dialogue and unplanned is word for word for how it happened. So that's uh, all true. That all it happened. Is. Now, it is. you guys, you and this, I want to emphasize this. You are not standing outside of clinics screaming and yelling things and going crazy on the people going in. That's not what you do. You pray. No, we're quiet. Yeah. You're quiet. You pray. You try to help people. Um it is also for your listeners, because I've gotten this question a lot during Unplanned, for 40 Days for Life, you know, now that we left the city where it started, where Abby ran her abortion facility, to, to 816 cities, it is actually policy that we don't approach the workers. They have to approach us first, uh, because they'll call the police. They'll say, he's harassing me. He, you know, he, 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 he said... Uh, you know, we, we say good morning to them and we, we create a relationship, but we don't when they show up to work, we don't say you're you're committing murder here all day. You're going to burn in hell. We need to talk. You know, that's that's against our policy. We would never say anything like that. And so these are workers actually coming to us. I mean, in a sense, as God was pursuing Abby, she was pursuing us and and kept coming, you know, over to the fence and and talking to us and that. That she also came out and she listened to every word I said when we did a big rally in front of her her facility, and she would, you know, sit out there, make a lot of her staff sit there, and we would, you know, have an opening prayer and, and some talks. And I always said, and so many other people said, we're here for the babies, we're here for the women who are going in, but we are also here for the abortion facility workers. And because we had that relationship with Abby, when it was her moment of truth and she saw the abortion. She trusted that, and that took humility from her, and she came over. What was your—so, and for those who don't know, I don't want to spoil the entire movie, but I think people know the story, the 30,000-foot view story, is that Abby leaves Planned Parenthood, and she walks into your office. Now, what, what is going through your mind when Abby comes to you? <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a Monday morning, I remember that, and a staff member came in and said, Abby Johnson is—said, Abby is here, which always meant Abby Johnson to me. But because I knew that it couldn't have been Abby Johnson, I said, Abby who? And he said, Abby Johnson. She wants out. Because I thought, is she mad? Did she, you know, did they, turn, did they turn on the sprinklers on us? Or did she upset about, you know, what is she mad about today kind of deal was my initial reaction in my mind. And then when I was told she wants out, I had basically a 30-second walk to visit with her. And I, uh, my goal in that walk was to, to pray, to listen to her, and then to, if it's appropriate, make her actually believe that we will help her. And so I was hoping for that if she truly wants out. And she could have been lying. She could have been putting on a show. And right when I opened the door, that was clearly not the case. And Abby and I are the same age, and I think that helped. I think us having all those conversations out, outside the fence and me knowing her. If somebody called me from Seattle and said, hey, my abortion facility director walked in and she's having a conversion. I mean, I think you, an outsider would be like, you need to be 50-50 on this. You right, know? exactly. And that be does careful. happen. That does happen where they, they're trying to collect data or cell phone numbers. That definitely has happened. But because I knew Abby, I, I, I was instant. I knew that she she really had had a change of heart. And so I wanted to help her and and... I would say, you know, in seeing the movie, the overwhelming joy and the celebration and the just look at what God has done, that really didn't hit me until months later. 
I was so worried about for her, worried about her, worried for her that they were going to come after her. And then, of course, they did. And I was just worried for her. You know, I knew she was losing friends, which she did. I knew she was just going through this huge transition. And so I didn't want to be the guy running around saying, look at what God did. And right. Like right. Her, and she's going through all this stuff in her life. And so, of course, there was great Thanksgiving and, and joy and sort of disbelief. But I had to get to work. You know, right. I had to I had to uh get her out of there and 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 help her realize they are you're a director you're leaving for moral reasons you're not just going to ride off into the sunset and so you know that's when we had the 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 hearing and all the legal drama but it was awesome i mean it, it was truly awesome and i think now is is the best i mean i look at her willingness to put herself out there in a movie she definitely didn't have to do the movie and put the worst things about her on the big screen for the world yeah, to that's, see. Yeah, that's tough. That's tough. I talked tough. to her about that, and hearing her say, you know, the first time she saw it, she wanted to be like, can we not do this? <laughs> can we, yeah, can we, can we turn is, back? Can we watch Die Hard? I'm tired of this. And, you know, she had to put herself out there, as did Doug and, and her parents. And I think, you know, the gift of God you know, putting Abby Johnson in the pro-life movement is, is the movie. I mean, you can see, I've just seen it. People say I've, I've blown it. Oh, I was pro-life. I never did anything. Or I didn't even think about abortion. Certainly didn't think abortion was murder. And now I, I'm completely involved. I, I woke up. It is a big wake up call. And that's the true gift. That's the that's the you just never see all the results, right? We've seen some beautiful stories come out of when the movie came out, and we saw a thirty percent bump in participation at Forty Days for Life. But you just—it's so big you don't you don't get all those stories, and that that is the the fruit of uh, her willingness to put herself out there. How many times um, would you say you prayed for her specifically before she made that decision to come into your office that day? Oh my gosh, I don't think I've ever been asked for that before. Uh, Every time I went out to the abortion facility, and so that was at least three or four times a week for five or six years. So always prayed for the director and prayed for her boss before her, the director before her, and and for all the workers. But definitely prayed that she would leave. And I, I when she left, it did have that. We prayed for this, but it wasn't going to actually happen. You know, <laughs> isn't that so funny though? And I know it's, and look, that's an accomplishment. I asked you something. You've done a lot of interviews. You haven't been <laughs> asked. It is. Nobody's asked me how many times did you actually pray? For well, her? because I think about the, I think about a lot lately, just in my life, when something happens, all the events that led up to that and the way that God does certain things. And when it comes to, this issue, and I think about Abby, and I think about you and 40 Days for Life faithfully praying outside of, of clinics and hoping and praying that that's going to have an impact. And you mentioned discouragement before, but then seeing the lineage of how this went and how those prayers turned out and they were answered, I think that's a really, really powerful part of this story. I really do. It really is. It really is. And it was exciting because I got to see all of the volunteers who would go out there and, and pray for her or just pray in general, see the director left, our director left. It's not a story you hear about in another city or state. Our director left. And one thing they they took out of the movie or just decided not to include for timing, and it, it sort of can be a rabbit trail, was then the difficulty of people even – 
that I ran into because I was trying to find her a job. And we had uh, an unlikely, most people said he would he would never hire her. He's a judgmental guy. And we had a physician who was going to hire her in his office. And, but my initial calls, people were like, uh, no, she worked at Planned Parenthood. I'm glad she got out. I want nothing to do with her. Uh, <laughs> or she, one guy said she made her bed. She can sleep in it. And that's very redemptive. <laughs> yeah, very redemptive. And and I understand if you, you know you don't want to hire somebody, you totally, don't want to hire totally. them. But it was it was kind of a I don't believe her for a second or I just I'm I'm not over that, you know. She uh she she did 40 abortions a week for you know, 6 years and I'm I'm sorry if I don't want her to ha- over to have coffee. And you know, some of that you understand. You, you people, people go out there and and they didn't, you know, yell at her, or shout at her, but um, not everybody was ready to leap up, you know, and give her a hug for sure. And that really bothered me, you know, because I was like, "What are you talking about?" You know, so it it really it really bothered me, and I thought this is going to be tougher than tougher than I thought. Um, just trying to help her because. She, you know, had quit her job and and she was just kind of going out on 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 her own and and there was not everybody was rejoicing and that was surprising to me. What would you say as we sort of round out here to the end of the interview? What would you say to those who are watching this debate unfold right now in America? They've maybe heard Abby's story. They've maybe heard your story. They're seeing the laws that are being passed, they're, they're just in the middle. They're not sure where they stand on the life issue. What would you say to them? It, that, that on everything else, they are allowed. And they, there is no allowance to be in the middle on abortion, which is why we're still talking about it for 46 years of legalization in America. It doesn't allow that because either people like me and and now Abby and the pro-life movement, we are completely detached from reality. We believe in Santa Claus, that abortion kills a baby. We're crazy. It's the Easter Bunny. And we've sort of piously been trying to help people that don't really want it, <laughs> which are women seeking abortions. It's like going and getting your tooth pulled and we're we're silly. Or abortion does what it sets out to do and which we can see which is what's so powerful about the movie, and that is in the life of an unrepeatable human being that has a beating heart and who has everything uh, in them to to not only are they currently existing, but all the DNA to be a grumpy old man or a soccer player or Tom Brady or whatever it is they're going to grow up to be. And therefore, we're killing that person. And we either have to protect that person or we need to tell people like me to get lost. There is no middle ground. Abortion either kills a baby or it doesn't. And I think that the amount of science that you have to deny in order to honestly support abortion has been thrown out. And so one side has said, this has nothing to do. Of course, abortion ends a life. The head of the largest abortion operation in the UK said, yes, we kill lives. Of course. And I'll call it a baby. We kill a lot of babies. And I'm very proud of the work that we do. She said that in an interview. That is so, and so sad. It, it's so sad, but it's what they're forced to say if they're honest. Right. There's gonna, a consistency to it. <laughs> you're not going to yeah, you're not going to tell Cuomo that it's a blob of smell uh, of cells. You know, he's like, no, 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 no. We want to abort babies 40 weeks coming out of the birth canal. And if the baby survives, we will leave it on the table and they'll die and we will not give it 
medical attention. I mean, Governor Cuomo is very honest about that. That's the New York bill, and there's so many support it. So there is no middle ground. I wish there was, and heck, I wish our side was wrong and we were a bunch of goofballs and somebody would appear and say, no, 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 here's A, B, and C of why it's not a baby. And that's never been done, and all science and all technology points to the fact that this is a baby. We do surgery on children in the womb. That's how great our technology is. We, we don't allow pregnant women on roller coasters. So it, it, we have to protect the unborn. We cannot dehumanize an entire segment of our population, which we've done in America before, because of their size and because of their location. And that it's, is exactly yeah. what we're doing. It seems like there's very, very selective memory and selective language when it comes to when we decide something is a life and when we decide it's a not, it's not as a culture. And you know, the surgery example that you just mentioned, I think about Ben Carson and so many others doctors today who who literally save unborn babies' lives through fetal surgery, right? And and then those babies are born and they live because they were lives. They are lives. And I think that's a part of the problem. It is interesting when you said the consistency piece. Some people are willing to actually tell the truth, and that's terrifying and sad when you hear them say it, but it is the truth. But I do think that the great deception is that a lot of people are lying about what is happening, and that control over language does impact what people think, because once you hear the real words, it, it, it forces you to think it through. It, it does, and it's, it's, it's scary. You, you just explained the, the essence of abortion, which is science— and reason have to be thrown out, and what makes the baby a baby is our will. And that's the scary thing. If you want the baby, it's a blessing, and you get a baby shower. If you don't want the baby, or we tell you you shouldn't have the baby because you're on drugs, you're irresponsible, you're in college, your boyfriend's a loser, whatever it is, our will is deciding the dignity and the value of this person. And somehow we've given ourselves the authority to grant more dignity and more value during gestation, which is insane. So it's okay to have an abortion at eight weeks, but it's really horrible at 35 weeks. You know, we don't gain dignity during gestation. We just grow. So it it's built on a lie, which is why I believe it's going to end and why it is ending and why Unplanned was so successful and why 40 Days for Life has spread. You know, you cannot sell this lie that divorces the most beautiful bond in all of humanity. Men can't grow babies. You know, we can't feed a child once he or she is born. This is the greatest gift that we have. It's the path our Lord came into the world through, is the womb. And we've, we've divorced that and said, no, it's not love, it's choice. And we've done so in the most violent manner. Well, listen, Sean, I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Where can people go to find out more about you and your ministry? Uh, go to 40daysforlife.com. It is the number 40, 40daysforlife.com. You can get the book, uh, The Beginning of the End of Abortion, that I released last year on, on that. You can also listen to our podcast. We do a weekly podcast, have a lot of guests, a lot of former workers, and, and a lot of great stories on the 40 Days for Life podcast. That's on iTunes. Thanks so much. I really appreciate you coming on today. Thank you. Keep up the great work. What a powerful interview. I think the most interesting thing about Sean and Abby 
And I think this is a lesson for all of us. When you're praying for something so hard or you're praying for another person that they would make a change in their life and you're just thinking this is never going to happen, I would imagine Sean and many others were looking at Abby and thinking this woman is never going to leave Planned Parenthood. This would never happen. It probably wasn't even a thought in their minds, let alone her moving forward to become one of the most well-known pro-life speakers in the country and or world. Uh, So it's just, it's a lesson that God can do anything and that he can change any heart and that our prayers really do matter. I think that's a testament to all of the the work that Sean does. And so it was an excellent interview, a lot of fun uh, getting a chance to talk with him. Now we're going to take a quick break and we will be back in just a moment with more of the Pure Flix podcast. We'll be right back with more of the Pure Flix podcast. Did you know you can access thousands of entertaining and inspiring faith and family-friendly TV shows, movies, and original series? It's simple. Just log on to pureflix.com right now to start your free one-month trial. From kids' content to some of the most uplifting films, we've got your entire family covered. Sign up today. And we're back with more of the Pure Flix podcast. And we're back. So one more interview for you today. And this is an interview we did at the National Religious Broadcasters Convention. We also aired this on our Pure Talk show. That's our talk show over on Facebook at facebook.com backslash PureFlix, and you've got to listen to this. This is Greg Laurie. Now, I'm sure you know who Greg Laurie is. He is a pastor. He's the founder of the Harvest Events. Greg is phenomenal. He is somebody who travels around, brings the gospel to communities, and sees hundreds, if not thousands, of people move forward to accept Christ after he preaches phenomenal guy. Now, Greg also makes movies. He does a lot of fascinating stuff in the faith world. He has a book called Jesus Revolution, How God Transformed an Unlikely Generation and How He Can Do It Again Today. And so we had a chance to sit down with Greg and ask him about his path to faith, which is which is super fascinating. I didn't know a lot about his background growing up with a difficult childhood and, and finding Christ, but we also had a chance to ask him about the world that we're living in now, this chaotic culture, is it possible that we could have another great awakening, a spiritual awakening? And he gives us some lessons from the Jesus Revolution and what happened in the 60s and 70s and draws some parallels to where we are now. And I won't spoil it too much, but he thinks there's a chance that we could see a renewed faith among many in this country. So let's roll that interview right now. So we've talked about your book, Jesus Revolution, and I want to dive a little bit more into this. Why, Why did you write this book? Well, basically, Billy, it was the last great spiritual awakening in America. You know, America's had four great awakenings that changed the course of the country. And the Jesus movement, or as Time Magazine dubbed it, the Jesus Revolution, was the last one. And I just know a lot of people don't know that much about it. Well, that's when I came to Christ. So, you know, I thought, I need to tell this story because the fame of revival spreads the flame of revival. So I wrote it as though I was sitting, you know, at a table across from like a millennial. 
and we're having avocado toast. Like right toast. now, kind of. I don't, well, I don't do avocado toast. You don't like toast, avocado though, no. toast, but a latte or something. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah, like. that's it. So I wanted to tell them the story, saying, here's what God did for my generation when we were young, and I pray he'll do it for yours as well. So I think there's some takeaway truths, things that we can learn from it. And I also find there's an interesting parallel between the late 60s and early 70s and today. And so I thought there were some relevant connections there and in hopes that we would pray for another spiritual awakening. So I want to talk about that, that connection between okay. the time periods. Yeah. But I wanted to ask you, for a revival to happen, like what does that look like? What are the hallmarks of a revival? I think I found that there, there are more. But I'll, here's five earmarks of what I saw in the Jesus movement that were distinct to that time. Number one, there was passionate worship and effectively contemporary Christian music and contemporary Christian worship as we know it today started then. Uh, up to that point, it was mainly hymns, very traditional. Uh, a folk song might slip in here and there, but a whole new genre of music was born before our eyes and it, was, it came out of a passion to worship God. Uh, number two, there was a real focus on evangelism. You know, in all of our services, people would come to Christ, you know. People would be invited to put their faith in Jesus Christ. A third thing is that we believed in the imminent return of Jesus. That found its way into a lot of messages that Christ could come back at any moment. Another thing that was happening back in that time was just a real focus on Bible exposition, really digging in to the Word of God in pretty much every service that we had. And I would say, uh, lastly, an openness to the Holy Spirit, a sense that we need God to work, we want God to work. So put those all together, those were earmarks of the movement of that day that I experienced firsthand. And, you know, there was something very magical and wonderful about walking into the service where God was at work. It's hard to describe. I see glimpses of it here and there and different things that I, uh, I'm involved in and or maybe something I'll attend. It's reminiscent of it. But there was a move of the Spirit that was happening around the world. But there were certain spiritual hot spots. And I found one of those hot spots, which was in Southern California at Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa. Now, I love your personal story, too, because if I recall, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, you were about 17. Yeah. And you had dabbled in, you know, partying a little bit yeah. and, you know, weren't you weren't saved. And what was the moment for you that just kind of convinced you that you said this is the truth? For me, it was like a process of elimination. You know, um, I, I had to grow up fast because my mother was uh, a raging alcoholic and she would pretty much pass out every night from drinking. So I had to almost be like a parent to my own parent. And then add to this effect, she was married and divorced seven times, so we're moving all around oh, the wow. country, and she had boyfriends in between. It was just crazy, a crazy, chaotic childhood. So when I was 17, I felt like I was 70. I just had seen so much life, and unfortunately, I'd seen a lot of horrible things that a little boy shouldn't see. So um, I knew that I didn't want to live, I didn't want to walk in the footsteps of my alcoholic mother. Well, around this time, the drug culture was coming on strong and, and sort of the uh, ideology of the time was, you know, adults are bad. Never trust anyone over 40. Drugs are the answer. Well, that resonated with me because all the adults I was exposed to, none of them were good examples. I didn't admire any of them. So I started dabbling in drugs, uh, smoking a lot of weed, taking LSD pretty much every week. And, and I quickly realized that was a dead end street. I could see the 
effect it was having on my life. So it was almost like process of elimination. It's not in this alcoholic, sometimes affluent life of my mother. It's not in this drug culture. Uh, where is the answer? Well, on my high school campus, there was some very outspoken Christians that we called Jesus freaks. And my friends warned me, you know, Greg, stay away from the Jesus freaks. And I said, famous last words, the last thing Greg Laurie will ever do is become a Jesus and freak. And now look at you. Well, look at me. So, so I, you know, I kind of eavesdropped on their conversation. They were having a little Bible study on the front lawn of the school. I sat close enough to listen in on what they were saying. That's the first time I heard the gospel. I understood it. And that was the day I gave my life to Christ. Wow. And you yeah. never looked back. Not really. That's <laughs> pretty incredible. Well, I mean, and you hear a story like that and you see how God uses people. I yeah. mean, you've had crusades all over the place. You've had people, I mean, when you hold these events and you do the altar call and you see people just flood up to the stage, what's that like for you to see? Because you're talking about wanting this revolution to happen, wanting this to happen on a broad scale. But what's it like for you to see that at your events? Well, you know, it's spiritual warfare, to be honest. Um, you know, I once asked Billy Graham, you know, Billy, what do you experience physically when you extend the invitation for people to come to Christ? And Billy said, I feel like power is going out of me. It's like a battle, a conflict. So, but yet it's a very important spiritual battle that needs to be fought. And, you know, what moves me is not numbers. Oh, this many thousand came forward or this many thousand, you know, attended. It's individual stories. And I'll run into people and they'll say, you know, I was despondent. I was suicidal. I came to your crusade or I saw you on TV or heard you on the radio or a podcast or whatever it is. And, and this is how my life changed. And now here's my, my son and my daughter and they've been raised to love Jesus. And, and I see the impact of the gospel changing the course that life was taking. That's what keeps me going. It's those individual stories of transformation. Now, going back to what you were saying earlier, because I went on a little detour there, but I want to get back to the, the similarities that you saw in the late 60s, early 70s, and now culturally. What would you say those similarities are? And maybe what are the differences? Well, I would say uh, similarities would be just a sense of division in the country. You know, our, our divide in the country is very strong right now. And, and there was a huge divide in the country then, a lot of riots, a lot of protests a lot of uh, confusion. And I think also, you know, the drug epidemic was beginning then, which is the opioid epidemic today that's so out of control. But that's when it was starting. The sexual revolution effectively was starting in the mid 60s. The birth control pill, I think, was discovered in 1961. And then, you know, th that's contributed so much to the breakdown and now even the redefinition of the family. You can almost take every social ill in America today and trace it to the breakdown of the family and specifically to the absence of fathers in the home. And so we've tampered with God's design. We've sown the wind, now we reap the whirlwind. And, and so there was a time of, of wondering, is this ever gonna change? Is it just gonna get worse? We had the Vietnam War, of course, raging. We had our world leaders, our, our American leaders being shot before our eyes, starting with John F. Kennedy, then Martin Luther King, and then Robert F. Kennedy was just craziness. And, and so I think there was a desperation, a calling out to God. And I see that happening now. I hear more people talking about the need for revival, the need for a spiritual awakening than I've heard in a long time. And I think we're on the right track because the ultimate solution for America is not a political solution. There is a place for politics, but uh, it's ultimately a spiritual solution. We need a fifth great spiritual awakening in America. So. That's why I wrote Jesus Revolution.
So let me ask you about this, because one of the yeah. elements, when we talk about the cultural similarities and differences, what, what are some of the similarities and differences of the church? Because that seems to be the core of this, right? You know, when you, when you want something like this to happen, when you're hoping it happens, what was the church doing then, and what is the church doing now? It is different, because back then the church really missed it. Uh, you know, John Lennon was famously quoted to say, the Beatles are more popular than Jesus, and that was so controversial. Actually, that was true for a lot of young people. The Beatles were more popular than Jesus. Uh, yeah, the people made an idol out of a rock band. And so the reality is, is that the church was culturally so disconnected that here was a generation of people searching. So when God sent the Jesus movement, basically the churches that opened their doors for it experienced revival and the churches that closed their doors to it did not. But I would also add that as God was working, it changed the culture. I talked about how contemporary Christian music was born, uh, contemporary Christian worship was born a lot, and the church made a lot of changes. Okay, so fast forward to today. We're, I think the church has caught up on many fronts. I think we're making some of the best films we've ever made for so long. Christian films were cheesy. That's an uh, area you've gotten into. Yeah, too. a little bit with yeah. the Irwin Brothers and and I've supported other filmmakers because I believe in, in films and I believe in the power of reaching people through entertainment. But, um, you know, with John Irwin, uh, we're going to do a film actually on the book Jesus Revolution uh, in the future. But we've supported, uh, I can only imagine, and we've supported other films as well. But, um, and then we made a documentary called Steve McQueen, The Salvation of an American Icon. So, uh, so I think we've caught up there. I think music, I think in many ways, Christian music is sometimes better than secular music right now. That That's a recent development. I think tech-wise. powerful artists. Yeah, yeah, there really are. And I think in social media, we're competitive. I, I think in a lot of areas, we're doing a great job. Here's the problem. Now, we're, we're so good at relevance, but in some cases, we're losing our core message. Before, we had the message right, we were irrelevant to culture. Now, we're relevant in quotes, but if we compromise our message on the altar of relevance, we've missed it all. You said, so I actually wrote this down because it was such a good quote. Last time we talked, you said, let's not sacrifice the gospel for coolness. So you have nothing new to say. So, no, but no, but <laughs> but it's we need to keep saying yeah, it because right. people are doing it. It seems to be an endless quest of trying to find this balance between truth and love and yeah. failing at it endlessly on either side. Yeah. You know, not that you can ever have too much truth, but you know what I mean? Yeah. The truth brigade and then just the love brigade and not having this healthy mix. Why do people struggle with that so much, do you think, today? I think people, you know, I'm an evangelist, so I'm always looking for ways to make connections. And and I feel that you can you know, if you want to win some, be winsome. Try to be a nice person. Try to be an approachable person. Don't take yourself too seriously, but take your message very seriously. Having said that, having built that bridge, now I have a responsibility to deliver the goods. The gospel message has been given to us. We can't tamper with it. We should not add to it, nor should we take away from it. And there are aspects of this gospel message that some people will find offensive. Well, okay, that's the way it goes. But I'm not going to back down on the message because it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believes. And I think a lot of people who are going into ministry today or are called influencers or are out there, it's like, fine, be culturally relevant, be cool, that's all fine. But remember, the message is all that really matters. You know, I once asked Billy Graham, Billy, if an older Billy was speaking to a younger Billy, what advice would you give yourself about preaching? 
And without hesitation, he says, I would preach more on the cross of Christ and the blood because that's where the power is. So if in my desire, I'm compromising to be relevant, then I've missed the point. Let's not lower our standards in order to extend our reach. Uh, let's hold our standards. Let's give them the message of the cross of Christ is death on the cross for our sins is resurrection from the dead and how he can change lives. Let's not back down on that. And, and I, I believe God will really honor it. Yeah, and I think people, I think they struggle. I think they're afraid too. There's fear, there's also confusion. There's a lot of confusion. It seems like people are not maybe hearing in churches what they should be hearing because maybe some pastors are avoiding it. They're not going into some of the topics they're afraid and making them understandable for people. I think yeah. that's the key, you know, yeah. because sometimes when you have somebody explain something to you and relate it back to the gospel, you're like, oh, I actually see yeah. that now, right? Yeah. And finding that way to present that with love yeah. to people. That's uh, right. And, and that seems to be where there's a little lack Right yeah, now. I think there's a, a really a lot of biblical illiteracy today, and, and I think that it's a responsibility. I'm a pastor as well as an evangelist, and it's and I'm teaching through the book of Romans. It's my responsibility to teach the Word of God. It's my responsibility to declare the whole counsel of God, not just talk about things that I like to talk about. So when you go through a book like Romans, you're going to get through a lot of topics you might no normally you have to approach. You go very deep into Romans to get there. That's either. right. <laughs> yeah. But it, you know, but yet it, it's so important for people to understand what the Bible says about so many things, about everything we need to know about life is found in the sure. Scripture. So I offer theology without apology, and I think people really want to hear truth. I think they want to hear the Word of God. But my job is also to make it understandable to people. You know, uh, it's not that I need to make the Bible relevant because the Bible is relevant, but I do want to make it understandable and bring it into the world and show them how it affects them in day-to-day -day life. Sure, I mean, because you have a rash of people who are saying the Bible no longer matters. They're not even looking at it. They don't even know what's in it because in their minds they've been told this is old, it's outdated, yeah. it doesn't matter, it's silly. That's right. And so to sort of present it to them in a way where it's like, well, no, you actually don't even know what's in it. Let's yeah. talk about it. Here's what's going on. That's right. That opens people's eyes, even if yeah. they haven't decided to believe when they first hear it. That's right. I think, I think that's the real quest we have yeah. now. Generation Z is rising up, yeah. and they are young, and they are far worse than the millennials are when it comes to even knowledge of what is in the Bible. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's right. They've been, <clears throat> I just read an article that described Generation Z as the loneliest generation. And it's so funny because they, they actually pulled every generation, the baby boomers, the busters, Generation X, uh, the millennials, of course, and now Generation Z. And, and they said that out of all of them asking them, are you lonely or not lonely? The loneliest generation was Generation Z. Yet they're more connected than any generation. Snapchat, Instagram, That's I mean, it. you go down the line. But they're not real relationships. Right. I'm, I'm playing Big a game friends. with someone on the other side of the planet I'm watching my followers or my comments on my social media, and because they're so immersed in this form of media, they're missing normal cultural cues, how to have normal relationships. And I think it's a great opportunity for the church to step in Absolutely. and enter their world. And, and you know, a lot of these kids, honestly, they're looking for <clears throat> parental figures that are a godly example. You know, when I was a Christian uh, at 17, I didn't hang around young people as much as I hung around older people because I never saw any adult figures I admired. I was looking for some godly mom and dad figures. So I think we're always trying to be the cool um, older brother, and you might just want to be the just godly lame dad. Right. Yeah, maybe that's Where's your pants a little want. too high? I don't know. It doesn't <laughs> matter. The coolest thing of all is authenticity. 
the coolest thing of all is being yourself. And the most important thing of all is, is reaching a person where they are. So the, the last thing I would ask you about is there are a lot of people I talk to and they'll say, even family members and others I encounter in media, you know, what's wrong with you? You know, at the end of the day, we know the world's going to, it's going to go bad. Everything's going to go bad. Why are we even wasting our time trying to make it better? There's not going to be a revival. You know, can you have both things happening at the same time? Well, I don't know how anybody could say there's not going to be a revival. Uh, I think we should pray for revival. I think we should work for revival. You know, I think... If you want to see a revival, do revival-like things. Let's say you tell me, hey, Greg, uh, I'm having problems in my marriage and, and, you know, we've lost the romance. I'd say, Billy, get back and do romantic things with your wife again. When's the last time you took her out to dinner? When's the last time you told her she was beautiful? When's the last time you, well, I don't feel that. I don't care if you feel it. Just do it. Your emotions will catch up. You want romance? Do romantic things. Apply that to revival. You want revival? Do revival-like things. I already identified some of them. <clears throat> we used to focus on the Word of God, worship, evangelism, and we believe that Christ could come back at any moment. Hey, if you apply those truths in your life, you can have personal revival. Only God can send a spiritual awakening to America. We can't make that happen. But a personal revival, that can happen for you, that can happen for me, and that can happen for the person watching us right now. And it doesn't seem like there's any conflict to me between culture going one way and between the, this you know, revival happening, this revolution yeah. happening, that can still happen while more people are, while God is sending that and more people are discovering the truth, right? I don't, I no. don't see, there's not a disconnect there to me. No, I mean, the Bible says when the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord raises up a standard against him. Sometimes in the darkest of times, that's when the revivals happen. <clears throat> Excuse me, the third great awakening happened in New York City. A guy named Jeremiah Lamphier started prayer meetings uh, at lunchtime, hardly anybody came. Then the stock market crashed. Then his prayer meetings were packed. Then they were overflowing churches. Then they were literally meeting in theaters on Broadway. And when it was all said and done, a million people came to Christ through what was called the prayer revival. What was happening culturally? Collapse of the economy. So when things are going bad on the outside, that can be some of the best times for a move of the Spirit because we look to God again. Well, listen, thank you so much thank for you. coming down. It's always great talking with you. Good talking with you, Billy. You're a good uh, interviewer. I'm a good interviewer. You sure are. Thank you. As always, it's great to hear from Greg Laurie. Now, this brings us to the end of our show. You want to make sure you grab copies, though, of his book, Jesus Revolution. You can get it wherever books are sold. And on the flip side here, I want to just point you guys to pureflix.com. Listen, if you don't have pureflix.com, you can head over right now, get 30 free days, check it out, see what the service is all about. But if you do have it or if you don't, either way, I do want you to stream this movie. We have a film called Seven Reasons. It's from Ray Comfort. Um, you might be familiar with Ray. He's a well-known evangelist. But this is a movie where he goes through and has conversations with a number of people who support abortion. And you can see through these conversations, some of their perspectives change. But it's very revealing when you start to question people and talk through in a peaceful, calm manner this issue, what sort of goes through people's minds. It's a fascinating film. You can check it out. It's called Seven Reasons over at pureflix.com. Now, if you're looking for daily content, we have a blog. It's the pureflix insider it's at insider.pureflix.com we also have our podcast which you're listening to now you can subscribe to that at anchor.fm slash 
PureFlix podcast. If you haven't already, you can see all the great places that that podcast, that this podcast is streaming. So check out the blog, keep checking out the podcast, and make sure you go over to pureflix.com. Tune in next time for another episode of the PureFlix podcast. That's all for today's podcast. You can follow PureFlix on Facebook at facebook.com slash PureFlix and on Twitter at PureFlix. And be sure to log on today to pureflix.com for your free month of access to thousands of faith and family friendly movies and TV shows. Thanks for listening to the Pure Flix podcast.